0: If you have ever launched a business, or if you have ever inherited a business, or if you've ever relocated your family to a, a, new, a new area and had to start, kind of start over, or if you've had uh, anything happen in your life that basically caused you to have to reboot your whole life, then maybe you have just a little sense of what it must have been like for Jesus' disciples after he ascended back up into heaven and left the whole Christian movement in their hands. Think about that for a minute. Think about the exhilaration, the anticipation, maybe the butterflies of uncertainty, maybe even a tinge of fear. Imagine what they were thinking. Wow, okay, well, this is a whole new ball game now, I guess. What's gonna happen now? How, how's this gonna go? How's this gonna turn out? We risked a lot to do this. Did we make the right move? So there they were, gathered together in a spacious upper room, and fortunately it wasn't just them, those 11 remaining disciples of Jesus were glad to be surrounded by the whole fraternity of Christ followers, 120 in all it says, and uh, as the disciples looked around the room, it must have warmed their hearts to see those brothers and sisters huddled together in little groups, some eating perhaps, some talking, many of them praying, and they loved that sweet hum, that sweet, sanctified hum coming from God's people lifting up their voices together in prayer before the Lord. No doubt they recalled that just before he left, Jesus had given them their next assignment, but then Jesus had told them to stay in Jerusalem, stay there and wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you before launching your mission. Jesus had said they would need the Holy Spirit's power to actually carry out their mission, so they listened to him and they did what he said. There they stayed and there they prayed. But for sure, the anticipation was building up inside of these disciples as they wondered, how long is it gonna be? How long before the Spirit comes? What's gonna happen when he does come? And then what? You know." <laughs> How exactly is our new mission going to get underway? Well, that's the scene we're stepping into here when we open up the very first chapter of the New Testament book of Acts. But before Luke takes us into that upper room, into that prayer gathering, he has a few things he wants to to tell us, a few things he wants to say. If you have your study guide, you can, uh, or if you don't have it, reach in and pull that out of your worship folder. You'll see where I'm going here, okay? The first thing is he, he gives kind of a, a recounting of some key gospel events. Again, he opens up Acts like this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So the writer of Acts, Luke, opens up this volume two of his history of the Christian church with a brief recap of his first book, volume one, which we know as Luke, the gospel of Luke, that's right. And we see him here mentioning a number of the the key events, the key historical events that that he had described in his first volume including Jesus many activities his teaching the fact that he had selected a number of men to be his disciples his suffering his resurrection the great commission he had given to the disciples after he had risen from the dead and then his ascension back into heaven all of that right here at the opening part of acts so right away we're given a sense that Luke's second work is going to build on his first it's going to be the sequel Acts is the sequel to the book of Luke and we know that that volume one the gospel of Luke was primarily about who Jesus right and what he began to do and to teach volume two now is going to be an account of what the the risen Jesus will continue to do and to teach through his holy spirit and through his church And so Acts tells us about the ongoing activity of the risen and exalted Christ now in heaven as he now builds his church and extends his kingship, his reign from Jerusalem outward like ripples in a pond. One interesting tidbit that Luke reveals here is how long Jesus stayed around after his resurrection. Did you notice that? 40 days, it says, about a month and a half, and then 10 more days would pass until the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And Many scholars believe there's some significance to those numbers, and we'll look at that in a few minutes. Well, as he opens this account, Luke seems very intent on showing that this new Christian faith and this new Christian church are grounded in history. Grounded in historical events. Did you see that? And he particularly wants Jesus' resurrection to be viewed not as some fantasy or some legend, but as history, as verifiable history. He says, he presented himself alive to them by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days. Uh, One scholar notes that there are 10 distinct post-death appearances of Jesus recorded in the New Testament. Luke wanted his readers here and, and later generations like us to understand that Christianity is not based on myth. It's not based on fiction, but it's based on history. It's based on an actual event that actually really happened in history. A Jewish man who claimed to be God in the flesh was killed and then came back to life again in history. Not only that, but that man, Jesus, had predicted both of those events in advance. Now, it's one thing to predict your death. It's quite another thing to predict your resurrection. And yet, Jesus had done both. The fact that he had really risen was validated by the fact, Scripture tells us, that over 500 people interacted with him after he had risen. They had conversations with him. They touched him. They listened to him teach. They ate meals with him jesus really was alive in luke's mind that changed everything the proven verified validated resurrection of jesus of nazareth does indeed change the whole ball game amen it does and not just for luke but for everybody Everybody on the planet. For if Jesus really did rise from the dead as he said that he would, then everything else he said must be true as well. Everything he said about who he was and where he came from. Everything he said about us and who we are and where we came from and why we're here and where we're headed and what happens after we die. Everything he said about the holiness of his Father and the wretchedness of sin and judgment and redemption. If Jesus rose from the dead in Luke's mind, then everything else he said must be true as well. If Jesus rose from the dead, that changes everything for everyone. I wonder, do you believe that? I do. I really do. In Acts, Luke is going to show that this event, Jesus' resurrection, became the centerpiece of the apostles' message. It was their main point. They knew, the apostles knew, that this is what would set Christianity apart from every other system of worship. No other world religion has claimed that its founder died and rose to life again. Jesus stands alone in that. And as we noted, that the fact that Jesus rose means that he is alive today. He's alive. He's living and active in heaven At the right hand of God and through his spirit, he is also at work on the earth doing everything he promised to do. I believe that too. Do you? I've experienced Jesus' aliveness personally. I know he's alive. I know he's alive. Second thing Luke shows us in this opening section of Acts is Jesus requirement to wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, while staying with them, that's Jesus staying with his disciples, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, Luke is referring back here to Jesus' final conversation with his disciples. He knew he was about to leave. He knew he was about ready to depart from the earth and leave his disciples behind, but he also knew he had made preparation for them to have another helper or another paraclete. Are you familiar with that word? It's the Greek word for helper or comforter. Jesus. Knew he had made arrangements for the Spirit, another comforter, another paraclete to come in his place, and he would come and he would be with them. This Spirit would provide the empowerment and encouragement that they would need to live faithful lives as they followed Christ and to carry out their mission. Now, it's interesting to note that the timing of this baptizing of the Spirit or this outpouring of the Spirit had been planned by God. Did you know this? in accordance with the feasts of the Jewish calendar. This may be new to some of you. Very fascinating to study. In the Old Testament, the Lord had pre- prescribed seven annual feasts for his people, the Jewish people, to observe, three of which were called the Passover feast, the Feast of the First Fruits, and the Feast of Weeks. Well, guess what? Those not only had significance for the Old Testament Jews, but they also foreshadowed how the Lord would line things up in His plan or program of redemption with Jesus. Jesus was crucified on Passover. He was raised from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits. And God would send the Spirit exactly 50 days later, lining up with the Feast of Weeks. The first day of which was often called Pentecost. Pente, 50. 50 days from the resurrection of Jesus to the coming of the Holy Spirit. Do you think that's cool, how God lined that up? I think it's pretty cool. You know what it tells me? God has always had a plan, and he's working his plan. And the same is true in your life as well. God has a plan. He's working it to perfection. Now, Jesus had promised his disciples many times that he was going to pour out his spirit upon them. That he was going to clothe them with power from on high, it says in Luke 24, 49. Luke mentions that his cousin John the Baptist had promised the same thing. Not many days from now, Jesus will, or you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Surely when the disciples heard that, they didn't really understand everything, everything that it would entail. I'm not sure they even understand that it meant that Jesus was going to go bye-bye and leave. But Jesus knew something. He knew it would be better both for them and for the mission if he did leave. For in God's plan only then would the Spirit come and indwell all of his followers, empowering all of them. Jesus knew that the coming of the Spirit to indwell his people would remove any geographical limitation from hindering the mission. Remember, Jesus wanted his gospel to go to the ends of the earth, right? But Jesus himself was confined by his human body that he had taken on, his flesh. When when he was here, Jesus never really traveled much outside of Israel. If he had stayed on, he could only be in one place at a time which would hinder the expansion of the gospel that he desired. So the Spirit needed to be sent. The Spirit needed to come if God's presence was going to be felt all over the world. So we're here tonight. We have the Spirit. We have brothers and sisters in India and China and in the Middle East who also have the Spirit indwelling them and present with them, right? So thank God for this. And I think also the mission that Christ was calling His disciples to was going to be so challenging, and it was going to invite so much resistance, that that even the greatest human effort wasn't going to hack, wasn't going to cut it. <laughs> it was necessary for the Spirit to come to indwell them and give them the power of Christ to carry out the mission. Then a the third thing we see here is the redirecting of focus to the mission. So Jesus is with his disciples now. Luke is reporting this back just before Jesus left. Verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Question? Made sense. And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority, but here's what you need to focus on. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So there the disciples were, together with Jesus, on the Mount of Olives exactly 40 days after his resurrection. Jesus is talking to them, but they seem unsure about what's going to happen now. So So, Jesus, what's next here in your plan? And they asked this question, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And and we can kind of understand that question. The Lord's resurrection had made it seem to them that that the time was now ripe for finally establishing that kingdom that he had talked so much about. Of course, they still interpreted it to be the overthrow of Rome and the establishing of a sovereign Jewish state with Jesus as the supreme ruler and them as his cabinet. And they're thinking, well, okay, Jesus, you died, you're, you're risen, here we are. Is, is now the time? Is it going to happen now? How did Jesus respond? Well, certainly he affirmed his father's sovereignty over the time frame, right? <laughs> over the plan, including the specific timing of events. He said those are fixed, and the Father knows when they're going to happen. But he, he says, he looks at his disciples and says, you know what, this is not for everybody to know. The Father, for his own reasons, has chosen to keep certain things to himself. Certain things are concealed. As it says elsewhere, the secret things belong to God. It's almost like he's saying, you know, don't don't worry yourselves about that. And then he basically redirects the whole conversation. And he does that a lot, you know. (laughs) The disciples are curious about eschatology, but Jesus wants to talk about mission. They're excited about a political kingdom. Jesus is excited about their part in extending his spiritual kingdom. So he redirects their focus to their new mission of expanding the witness of the gospel to all the world. You will be my witnesses. That's what I want you to focus on. I think those disciples needed to realize what we all need to understand, that that in this phase of God's grand plan, Jesus' kingdom will indeed come, but it's going to be established not through acquiring political power not through marshalling military might, but instead it's going to come through the bold witness of his followers, empowered by the Spirit, speaking and living out the gospel of Jesus wherever they go. Jesus' kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, right? In which he reigns in the hearts of people. He becomes their Lord and they worship him and obey him. Because their souls have been converted. Their souls have been made alive. Their souls have been transformed. And he reigns over them. I wonder how many of us live under the rule and reign of King Jesus gladly. So the disciples were fascinated with like end times prophecy. And there's nothing wrong with being interested in that. And they were speculating about how and when the Lord might come back. But what we see here is... Jesus kind of narrowing and defining the focus that he wanted his disciples to be tuned into. To get so caught up in all that that it becomes a distraction from the mission is not a good thing, is what he's saying. It's it's like he was a coach saying, fellas, stay focused. (laughs) Stay focused. Keep the main thing, the main thing here. While they were digesting all that, Luke reports on What happened next? Verse 9, When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was what? Lifted up. That's literally. And a cloud took him out of their sight, and while they were gazing into heaven as he went, I mean, you can imagine them going, Oh, what? Wasn't he just talking to us? (laughs) While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, Two men stood by them in white robes, angels, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was just taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This event is called the ascension of Christ. That's what theologians call it. It's often overlooked i think in in the telling of the gospel story while these guys were considering what jesus had just told them all of a sudden the disciples see him being lifted up from this mountain they were on and elevated high up into the clouds until he was completely out of their view where did he go the ascension of christ this event has more importance perhaps than you thought Tim Keller writes, the ascension of Christ, when understood, becomes an irreplaceable resource for us living our lives in the world. Maybe you never thought about that. Scholars note eight reasons why Christ's ascension into heaven should be viewed as very significant by every single Christian. So just listen to these. The ascension of Jesus marked the end of phase one of his earthly ministry. It signaled the start of a new era in the program of God. Things are going to be different now. Jesus is not here any longer. Third, it meant that Jesus got to return to his father in a most glorious father-son reunion after a season of being apart. I wonder what that was like. Fourth, the ascension pictures Christ as now elevated, high above his creation, exalted and enthroned as Lord, reigning over all from on high like he took his rightful position over all of creation. Fifth, it signaled a massive leadership transition in this young Christian movement. The founder basically turning it over to his understudies, his mentorees. Imagine what that was like. How would you like to follow Jesus? (laughs) Succeed Jesus. They needed the Holy Spirit. Number six, the ascension paved the way for the sending of the Spirit to empower Jesus' followers to continue His mission on earth. He had said, as long as I'm here, the Spirit's not coming. It's better for you if I leave so that the Spirit will come. Number seven, it marked the beginning of Jesus' new ministry as our heavenly mediator and our faithful high priest, which He's doing right now. And number eight, His ascent into the clouds, pictured His promised return one day from the clouds as king and judge of all the earth. Isn't that fantastic? Have you ever thought much about the ascension of Christ and how significant it really is to our faith? It really is. The ascended Jesus will indeed return to earth one day as he promised to gather his people to fully establish his kingdom at that time, to reign in perfect righteousness. But until that day, as he said, his followers are to be busy about his work, living And speaking his good news to those we come in contact with in our world. I'm not sure those disciples shook up in that moment and perplexed, got all that. (laughs) Two angels tried to encourage them. I think we should be encouraged too. Now, to pick up where we began a few moments ago, back in that upper room. So, what did they do? Jesus has just left. These angels had said, you know, don't worry, he's coming back. Verse 12, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. A Sabbath day's journey was less than a mile. When they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. And then there's kind of this list of who was there. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. How many is that? Eleven. Somebody's missing. Yeah, we're going to find out about the other Judas. There were two Judases among that apostolic band. All these, it says, with one accord, were devoting themselves to what? To prayer. Together with the women... So there's some other people there, some gals there, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, the last time she's mentioned in the New Testament, right here, and his brothers. Hmm. So what happened when Jesus disappeared? Well, the 11 remaining disciples decided to obey what he said, to obey his directive, to return to Jerusalem and stay there and wait for the outpouring of the Spirit and their base of operations was apparently an upper room, which some believe was the same upper room that just 43 days before they'd celebrated the Passover in. We're not sure of that. Others believe it was the home of John Mark's mother. We're not sure, really. But what we do know is that these 11 men were joined by Mary, Jesus' mother, and some other women who had followed Jesus over the course of the last several years they were there as well, as well as Jesus' brothers. That would be his half-brothers that he grew up with, Joseph and Mary's other children. Sons, they had some daughters as well, We're told in the scriptures that as they were growing up with Jesus, they didn't believe in him. <laughs> I mean, imagine growing up with perfection. They resented him, but apparently after seeing him risen from the dead, they saw the light. And they were converted to have faith in their half-brother as their Savior and Lord and Master. And they joined this band of followers. Family is often the hardest to reach. You know that? Family is often the hardest to reach. It took rising from the grave to convince Jesus' own brothers of the truth of his claims. So there they were gathered up in that room, and what were they doing? It says their main activity was prayer. They prayed together in one accord with persistent devotion. Why? Why didn't they play video games? You know, why didn't they do something? Why did they pray? Well, Jesus hadn't specifically told them to pray, just to wait, remember? But perhaps the best way to wait is to be praying. Some of you are experiencing that in your life right now. God has said, wait, and within that directive to you, He's saying, pray. Some of you need to hear that today. Perhaps our waiting is sanctified and purified Through our praying, as all of our fears and all of our hopes are brought under the Lordship of Jesus in that which we're waiting for. What do they pray? We don't know exactly. Maybe they prayed the Lord's Prayer over and over. That wouldn't be too much of a stretch, would it? How Jesus had taught them to pray. Perhaps they prayed the many teachings of Jesus back to the Father now including the recent things they just heard from him about their worldwide mission. Maybe they were praying about that, taking, being a gospel witness there in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Maybe they were praying about that. Maybe they were thinking about their family members who lived in those different regions. Maybe they were praying about his return one day because the angels had said he's going to come back just like you've seen him go. When was that going to be? Next month? Next year? Maybe they were praying over all those things. Maybe they prayed the Old Testament passages where the outpouring of the Spirit was promised, like Joel chapter 2. That might explain why that passage was on their lips immediately, just days later. Maybe they prayed for their hearts to be cleansed and prepared and ready for when the Holy Spirit would come. Maybe they lifted up to God the name of their lost friends and loved ones who had not yet seen the light put their trust in Jesus. Certainly, certainly they prayed in anticipation of this outpouring, this baptizing of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus said was coming. Could happen at any moment. And so there they were, that hum of prayer in that room. This has been called history's most powerful prayer meeting, primarily because of what happened in the next Few days and weeks, all that powerful preaching, the conversion of 3,000 people in a single day, all the miracles that, that would take place, certainly this prayer gathering laid the foundation and set the rhythm for the church's prayer life from that moment on. Well, I love Acts chapter 1. I think the events of this chapter set the stage for for all the incredible things that would follow as a... A very small band of Jesus followers would end up impacting the world in the space of 30 years. But let's fast forward a couple of millennia to today, <laughs> to us here today. What, what? This is a fascinating passage, but, but let's ask, what's, what's for us? What's in here for us today? And I think there are several things. So we'll call this closed circuit for New Life Church, okay? Think about what we just learned. I believe that we too need to regularly remind each other, like Luke did, of the key events of the gospel story. That's how he started off. There are a lot of things at work in our world trying to distract us, trying to pull God's people apart, trying to divide them from each other. What binds us together, what binds us together, despite our differences, is our shared conviction that a man named Jesus of Nazareth really did appear on this planet, right? That he was really born of a virgin. That he really did live and teach and perform miracles and minister to people and our shared belief then that at age 33, at age 33, Jesus really did die on a cross as our substitute, taking our sins upon Himself, allowing Himself to be punished by God in our place. He took our place. We believe that He was then literally, bodily raised from the grave by His Father on that first Easter Sunday showing that God the Father was satisfied with the payment that his son had made it's our shared belief that in those events that makes us christians right that's what makes us christians and as a result we entrusted our lives to Jesus because we believe he's alive we we gave him our lives we asked him to forgive us of our sins we entrusted our eternity to him that's what knits us together I believe there's power, and there's hope, and there's encouragement that comes from rehearsing the good news over and over again. In our darkest nights, and some of you have been there recently, when everything seems stacked against us, we should call to mind the great lengths that our God went to to bring us into His family. Amen? Through His Son, to secure our eternal destiny in heaven with Him. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Nothing. If God is for us, who can be against us? We should never grow tired of hearing the gospel. Second, we too, I believe, need a rich and full experience of the Holy Spirit. Just as those disciples in that era waited for that to come, we need the empowerment of the Spirit in order to live the kind of lives Jesus has called us to, holy lives, victorious lives, winsome lives. We need a rich, full, robust experience of the Holy Spirit if we're going to continue In the line of those who are carrying out that mission that he gave to be his witnesses wherever we go and we're learning that that power comes to us as we fully yield to the spirit's control amen we're going to talk more about that we let him fill us up we see more and more of his power in our lives third we too need to redirect our focus to our part in our risen king's continuing mission on the earth. We need Jesus' spirit to show us where we've gotten distracted and where we've gotten sidetracked or where we're majoring on the minors or where we're getting all worked up about things that really aren't worth all that passion. We've each got one life to live, amen? And we've got to make it count for the things that matter most, the things that will last forever. Number four, we too need to be reminded of our Lord's promise to come back one day as our exalted king when he's going to rout all of his enemies and set up shop and reign in righteousness. Jesus is coming back. Let's never lose sight of that. Gives us great hope. I would just say this, if you are one who is getting all bent out of shape due to the political climate in our country right now, whichever side you're on, May I challenge you to remember that as Christians, our ultimate hope really isn't in the political system. I've lived through 11 presidents. Some of you have lived through more. I've lived through 11 presidents, and while I felt some were better than others, they've all disappointed me in some way, every single one of them. Don't get me wrong, I'm not advocating apathy. Yes, we should seek the flourishing of our country and its people. Yes, we do need to... Seek influence to try to get God's law respected everywhere. Yes, we do need to work to see justice for all. But until the one truly righteous ruler appears, let's let our optimism be tempered by our theology. Because sinful people ruling over sinful people will always result in inequities. Always. Always. Number five, for us, we too, like those early believers, need to devote ourselves to prayer. Like those early Christians, we too need the comfort and encouragement and power that comes from uniting together in seasons of prayer. Amen? One of the men who discipled me once told me, Steve, I believe the key to everything is prayer. Think about that. I think he's right. I wish I lived that way. I wish I prayed that way. Given what we've looked at tonight, I think it's appropriate to finish up our time by doing that, by praying together, like those early disciples did. We're in a room, too. It's not upper, but it's a room. God is here. Praying with each other, praying for each other, for our flourishing and thriving as the people of God. It's okay to pray for that. For our witness to him in this city. Speaking of us, I think you'd be surprised to know of all the needs in our congregation these days. Most Tuesdays, our ministry leadership team is overwhelmed by the amount and the volume, the intensity of the needs in this congregation. The needs that New Lifers write out on their celebration cards every weekend. Let me give you just a sampling, could I? Without names from the last few weeks. I want you to feel this. I want you to feel the weight of what's going on just in our congregation. I'm asking for prayer for my siblings. My brother just found out he has an aneurysm. My sister needs to have a main heart valve replacement done. My brother is losing his sight. My other sister has been suffering from severe abdominal pain and just went to the ER because it was that bad. Pray for our custody battle. My ex-husband and I are going to court for custody of our daughter. Please pray for my mother-in-law. She undergoes surgery to remove colon cancer. Please pray for my close friends, a married couple with two kids. Yesterday, the father left his family and wants to file for divorce. Please pray for my stepfather. He is unsaved and an alcoholic and was in a serious car accident. Please pray for my sons. One struggles with schizophrenia. His life is a constant struggle. I can see he has no joy. The other, that he would conquer his past addictions and overcome a recent relapse someone else writes I'm dealing with the loss of a baby and I'm struggling to cope pray that my wife and I would return to our connection with the church and especially with the God of our youth please pray for our family as we sift through the emotions of losing our mother pray for my brother that this loss will open up his heart to God my husband's going to have surgery for melanoma on his back they're going to take out lymph node under his arm on the left side Someone writes, I've taken care of my 90-year-old dad for over 10 years. I'm at a crossroads in trying to talk to him about assisted living. He is blind, incontinent, smokes, and he's hard of hearing. I don't know how to start the conversation. I feel guilty even asking him. My brother-in-law just had surgery. He needs prayer for his soul. He's 92 years old and still has not accepted Jesus as his Savior. I'm giving my prayer request for my son to mend his relationship with his dad. Someone writes, my depression is swallowing me right now. I'm having a hard time doing the smallest of tasks. Please pray for salvation for my son. Please pray for my five-year-old grandson. He's having a heart procedure at Children's Hospital right now. We are struggling with the financial burden of student loans. Please pray for my dad, that he has strength and can get through the passing of my mother. Pray for my brother. He's into demonic music. I believe he's an alcoholic. I pray for him to realize he needs Jesus. I pray to say the right things to him that he will see Jesus in me. Please pray for me and my family as my wife and I are separating. Please pray for our children for comfort. Please pray for my friend who was stabbed and is now in the hospital. Pray for my unsaved mother-in-law. She just found out she has colon cancer. My dad told my mom this morning that he doesn't wanna live with her anymore. I'm not sure how serious he is. I think my dad could possibly be in the beginning stages of dementia. My mom is crying a lot this morning. Please pray for me. I'm going through some health concerns. I have a malformation that I was born with. It was diagnosed through an MRI. It causes dizziness, imbalance, choking, neck pain, and headaches. Trying to see a doctor for this, the only cure is to have head surgery. It's in my brain stem. Please pray for me. This is the third winter in a row I've been laid off. My husband is terminally ill. Pray for our grandson. He desperately needs God in his life. Please pray for healing of my epilepsy, anxiety and migraines and bladder cancer. Pray that I will continue to have spiritual conversations with my son who has walked away from Christ. I'll close with this one. Father God, this is a member here. Father God, we plead the blood of Jesus on our marriages, our homes, our families, our children. We stand on the rock, Jesus. We rebuke the devil, the flesh, and every spirit coming against us, and we say in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Go, be gone. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, for your grace, for your mercy endures forever. Church, we need to pray. We need to pray.